0: The OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast,
1: and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com OnScript. Hello, friends. Welcome to OnScript. This is Amy Brown-Hughes, a co-host for the podcast with Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Drew Johnson, and Chris Tilling. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Bruner, Associate Professor of Practical Theology at Azusa Pacific University about the intersection of art and theology, especially literature and film. Michael and I met a couple of summers ago when we both had the privilege of participating in the Lilly Fellows Program summer seminar for college teachers. Twelve of us, selected from theology, art, art history, and Christian ministry departments from around the country, Catholic as well as various denominations of Protestant, spent three weeks talking art and theology in Orvieto, Italy. It was very hard work, but we soldiered on. Some of my favorite moments during our time there were in between our sessions over a long dinner or resting in the sunshine during a hike to a monastery where we just talk. It was during one of those conversations that Michael shared about his love of Flannery O'Connor and his work on her for his dissertation, among other projects. His ability to connect his love of film, literature, even and especially difficult stories like those O'Connor writes with theology was as instructive, as it was a joy to listen to. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to introduce him to you, dear OnScript listeners. We'll talk about the discipline of practical theology, the intersection of art and theology, what it's like to write a screenplay, and of course, his recent book, A Subversive Gospel, Flannery O'Connor and the Reimagining of Beauty, Goodness, and Truth, published with IVP Academic in 2017. This is a wonderful book, and I'm delighted to get to talk about it today. Welcome, Michael.
0: Buongiorno, Amy.
1: (laughs) So, let's get to it. There are various disciplines within theology, historical, systematic, constructive, analytical, and you are a practical theologian. Could you start us off today by talking about what... uh, practical theology brings to the table, and what your journey into practical theology looked like.
0: So a colleague of mine uh, was once jokingly chided by a physics professor about my colleagues being in practical theology, implying, of course, that it was dumbed down, this dumbed down stepsister of true, unfettered, pure theology. So my colleague, in a moment of divine inspiration, turned the question around and asked the physics professor who happened to work in a specialized field of physics, what on earth is applied physics? Needless to say, my (laughs) colleague was never chided again (laughs) about practical theology. So uh, that's all to say that, to extend the example of applied physics, if applied physics serves as a bridge of sorts between physics and engineering, then practical theology Serves as a bridge between theology and ministry. And that's perhaps maybe the easiest way to look at it. Um, there are a number of factors that play into that distinction: the motivation and attitude of practical versus classical theologians, the skill set that each brings to their discipline, etc. But maybe in a sentence, then practical theology is, is just concerned with taking the, the fundamental truths and basic concepts of theology and utilizing them for ministry and the study of and interaction with culture. And your more uh, perspicacious listeners, Amy, will notice that I've basically just plagiarized the Wikipedia definition of applied (laughs) physics and (laughs) interchanged some of the terms. But in terms of how I got into practical theology, the simple answer is that's where the work was uh, when I needed it. I'm, I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister to begin with. So before I ever got into the academy, I was out in the field doing work and working with people. And when I began teaching at the college level, it wasn't until my late 30s as a second career. And I began actually as an English professor. So I taught in the English department, moonlighting occasionally in the practical theology department. And when it was time to find full-term work, there were no positions in English, but there were positions in the practical theology department. And so I was hired with only an MDiv at the time. So I, I went where the money was. And the rest is basically, you know, history. My degree is actually in theology proper with an emphasis in theology and culture. So in a sense, I get the best, I think, of both worlds. I'm fascinated by the classical questions taken up in theology, but I'm a student of culture, of the arts, of ministry. So I get to take the theories and ideas and problems that theology is concerned with and I get to mix them up with all the pressing questions of culture and ministry. So that's how I got into it.
1: That's wonderful. I, I appreciate your uh, your definition there, even if you maybe plagiarize Wikipedia in there. <laughs> um, uh, but I think that's, really, that's a really helpful distinction. Uh, and I think that it, it can be hard with a discipline as big as theology to uh, recognize that there are some discrete differences, but at the same time, like like systematic theology or constructive theology or historical theology, these are all theologies where faith and life meet. So it doesn't mean that those aren't practical in a exactly. sense, right? It's, it's more about the approach and how these things are worked out. And um, there's a lot of ground to cover in theology. And so... There is
0: indeed. And I think, you know, with practical theology, I think it's probably safe to say that rather than being purists, we really have to be sorts of jacks of all trades. And we have to be somewhat conversant with psychology and literature and social theory. So we may not get as deep into a particular area of theology, like many theologians might, but we need to at least be conversant with all of those areas. And for me, that's the sort of uh, person that I am. I'm a little bit more of a, I guess, a public intellectual than a, than a straight, pure scholar. And so it, it suits me.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, a couple of years ago, I was having um, a conversation um, down at Yale with, with Miroslav Volf, and, and we were just talking about theology in general. I don't remember what the context was, but he made this comment and stuck with me that really the future of theology mattering is impractical theology. And and that's really stuck with me because, you know, I work with a practical theologian here at Gordon and, um, and just seeing sort of what uh, that discipline is just really sort of blossoming over the last several years and really seeing uh, a lot of work coming out in bridging not just the gap between like the academy and the church, which, of course, everyone's supposed to do as a theologian, um, but also really addressing very specific issues that, are really, that really need attention. Like, um, like with you being someone who um, taught English and has—you know, bring that to bear in, in this book. Like, this, this book would not have been what it was without your training in, in English literature.
0: Well, and I yeah, and I joke, I joke actually. I think that's probably true. I hope so. But I joke with my uh, theology colleagues uh, at APU that they do very important work that that was really founded on the work that Paul did and we over in practical theology do the work that Jesus did. So, uh <laughs> that puts things in perspective. <laughs> But yeah, but their work is important. The work you do, Amy, is very important.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. But that's for another time. For another time. Yeah. So let's let's turn to Flannery O'Connor. So what was it about her that drew you as a pastor and a theologian to work so closely with her and Mm. to write this book?
0: Well, it's interesting. You know, I was really only introduced to O'Connor in a formal way when I was asked to write a screenplay adaptation of her novel, The Violent Beared Away, which I talk about in my book. I had taught some of her more anthologized short stories in my Intro to Lit courses, but it wasn't until my friends Scott Derrickson and Ralph Winner asked me to do this screenplay that I really dove into her work. In fact, I, I lied to them when they asked uh, whether I'd be interested in uh, if I had read the book, The Violent Bared Away, and I said, well, yes, naturally, of course I have, uh, but I hadn't, so I read it very quickly, um, and that was my first real introduction to her in the middle of my PhD program. In retrospect, I, I should have seen this coming. I've, I've always been fascinated by the intersection of beauty and terror. You could almost say that it's been a preoccupation of mine, and I honed some of those instincts reading the poet Rainer Maria Rilke and G.K. Chesterton, his fiction in particular, But it wasn't until I had a proper introduction to Flannery O'Connor that I saw what I now still believe are the deep and profound possibilities of that intersection in everyday living. I think that the intersection of beauty and terror um, is something that O'Connor does so well. She takes the exigencies of life, right? The essential brokenness of humanity, the darkness that hovers at the edges of existence that occasionally explodes right in the middle of it all, right into our laps. And she, she sort of baptizes them with this profound theology that sanctifies those occasions, that brokenness. And she does it without a hint of sentimentality. She despised sentimentality of, of any kind. So I realized almost immediately that she was my sort of spiritual doppelganger. I, I, and it didn't occur to me until I really got into her work that her preoccupations and interests with the intersections of light and darkness, of good and evil, of beauty and terror, that I was interested in um, those, those very same inter- intersections that we were both interested in resonated with me. And, and, and I was bedeviled and vexed by the very same things that she was. And, and basically what I've come to realize, Amy, in just the last few months is that what Flannery O'Connor was doing, I think, and what I'm so fascinated by is what I would call a creative theodicy. How do we explain the nature of evil? not in a technical theological way necessarily, but in a creative way. How do we render that in fiction, in music, in art, in life? So there was that connection. And, and then on top of that, just her aesthetic impulses, the things that she's sensitive to, like the hermaphrodite or the ment- mentally unstable or the classic freak. You know, She saw in these people a kind of divine enigma, sort of a, kind of like a spiritual summonings of the deep truths of existence. And those truths, you know, they're told in scripture, they're shown in scripture. If you want to know who God is, you don't look at the hero or the champion or the self-actualized human being. You don't go looking for Adonis, right? You open your eyes to the least of these, to the shunned, the outcast, because it's, it's precisely there in those people that you find the secrets of God. And so I think for O'Connor, she was sort of a lodestar for me. I, 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 she she gave she gave me words and images and ideas to wrap around this this thing that I, i'd always felt drawn to
1: yeah Oh, it's wonderful. We're going to come back to a lot of what you just said, sort of in different sections uh, today, So, because um, there, was, there was a lot going on there, which is so awesome. So you, you open your book directly with uh, your thesis. So we'll start there. I'll quote it. This book makes the argument that through her fiction, Flannery O'Connor subverted the conventional notions of trudi- truth, goodness and beauty making up a word there, not merely from a position of Christian dogma, but out of an aesthetic impulse. Would you unpack your argument for us there?
0: No, it's thick. You know, that, that sentence was one of the last that I wrote for the book. I just wasn't satisfied with sort of the soft pitch I was throwing at my readers. And I thought, I just need to lay it out there. I need to say exactly what this is about and that that will actually help not only the reader, but it'll help me frame the book. Uh, In a better way. And so that what you just read was one of the last sentences that I put in the book. And I guess my last answer that I gave just a minute or two ago, sort of anticipates that question, doesn't it? O'Connor understood that in a world turned upside down by sin. if, If that is true, if the effect of the fall was in some ways, literally to reverse everything, even time, so that now the longer we lived, we were moving towards death. If that, if that world is upside down and backwards, and Chesterton makes a lot of this, G.K. Chesterton does, then it stands to reason that the truth, beauty, and goodness of God will appear upside down to those with eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand. So things won't only appear through a glass darkly, like Paul writes, but they'll often appear like through a funhouse mirror right? that distorts everything. And this resonated with my own experience growing up in the third world uh in, in the Philippines. I was born and raised there. And I was I had a firsthand introduction to extreme poverty and um and my friends who I played with and I and I grew up around uh didn't have the sort of amenities that my family had, and we lived in a very simple home at the end of a dirt road. Uh, where there was no hot water, no radio, no television. I mean, I literally was born and raised in the 19th century. So, this notion of of things, beauty, truth, goodness, these classical ideas we inherited from the Greeks, as yes, there there are those elements that are obvious about those three things, but there's so much more of life that appears to be broken and violent and terrible, and how do I reckon with that? So, O'Connor's understanding that she never explicitly states it this way, but that those characteristics of God will appear, they won't appear as themselves necessarily in our our own experience. Well, this just resonated with mine, my experience. And it just made deep, deep sense to me. O'Connor, you know, herself was essentially a cripple most of her adult life. She contracted lupus at the age of 25 and she died from it at 39. So this woman who herself was an outcast uh, could see the truth, beauty, and goodness of things from this this existential perspective. She didn't revel in her brokenness. That would be, I think, to make a virtue of sin, but she tolerated it. She even called it a grace that she could see with one eye squinting, but she, she knew it was in a strange and mysterious way, a means of grace for her. And not grace itself, right? But a means of grace. It's the way that grace came to us was through a broken body, through the shed blood of the sacraments, um, through our own experiences. I watched a play once, I'm forgetting the name right now, um, back when I was at Princeton Seminary, and the line, grace always comes through a wound. And this was O'Connor's effective aesthetic mantra. So if you want to understand the disease of alcoholism, I would, for example, you don't take the word of an alcoholic who may or may not be willing to admit that he's even struggling with the, with the disease, nor do you just open a textbook. The best source of information for what the disease is comes from a recovering alcoholic, which is, I think, precisely why the 12 steps of AA are so you know, ubiquitous and helpful it takes a sinner to know a sinner, but it takes a sinner on the slow road to redemption to know the truth and essential goodness and beauty of this broken but sanctified life. And this is what O'Connor was. She, she didn't revel in her brokenness. She, she tolerated it. She, she accepted it. She understood it. And, and with that two steps removed, with that bit of distance, she could see herself, her broken body. I mean, lupus effectively turns the body against itself. What a marvelous metaphor for the fall and for sin, and she was able to just then embody her experience in her literature and her theology and uh, I'm telling you it just it worked its magic on me and and uh, it hasn't let go
1: yeah, so she you hinted at this a little bit um, so let's let's be specific just so our listeners are um sort of oriented to O'Connor. So she was deeply rooted and informed by her Catholic faith, a point that you emphasize throughout your book. Would you just give us a brief overview about uh, her influences and how Catholic theology shapes her approach?
0: Yeah, so she, you know, she, her main influence, I argue in my book is this guy named uh, Baron Friedrich von Hugel who is a Catholic lay theologian that almost no one has heard of, not even most Catholics. And apparently not many scholars of O'Connor had heard of her either, because I'm making this uh, uh, argument essentially for the first time. Uh, And I was grateful that I stumbled across it. It was like literally the, you know, the person who stumbled across the first nugget of gold in California in 1848. I thought, how could anyone have missed this? (laughs) This was seems to me so patently obvious. So he was, I argue, probably her main influence theologically. But obviously there were other people, you know, uh, Jacques Maritain is a huge influence on her, Etienne Gilson, Carl Adam, Teller de Chardin, uh, Gabriel Marceau, Roman Guardini, all these, François Marillac, all these people influenced her. But I, I, I think von Hugel stands above those in terms of influence. But she once called herself a hillbilly Thomist. She loved St. Thomas. Uh, There's an apocryphal story that uh, I've since um, found from out from one of her good friends probably wasn't exactly true, but uh, like many apocryphal stories, there's a hint of truth that she read 20 minutes of Aquinas every night before she went to bed. So St. Thomas via Jacques Maritain, uh, Baron Friedrich von Hugel, um, those were her main influences. And von Hugel died the same year she was born in 1925. He was a naturalized Englishman. And he was the one, mainly through his study, it was, it's a seminal study, still is, of St. Catherine of Genoa. Um, and he wrote a biography of hers called The Mystical Element in, uh, of Religion. It totally captivated O'Connor's sensibilities for the grotesque and for the essential tenets of Roman Catholic theology. So, for example um, the commitment to a sacramental view of the world, by which I mean, it's fundamental, fundamental commitments to this life. And the way our faith plays itself out in the daily grind of existence. I remember when I showed up to my first Roman Catholic speaking conference. In fact, it's the first conference I ever actually delivered a paper at. And it was on, it was a GK Chesterton conference. And I had been raised in a Protestant world I mean, well, I, Roman Catholic also in the Philippines, right? It's the most Roman Catholic country in the world, at least at the time. And and my father was on the theology faculty and they would... Anyway, that's another story altogether. But I went to my first Roman Catholic conference and uh, I was so heartened to find out that they served beer um, in in the intermission. I thought that would never happen at a Presbyterian conference. We'd serve a punch. So there was that, there's that earthiness, right, to Roman Catholic theology that... O'Connor embodies in her stories. It's just a commitment to this world. Um, The insistence that at rock bottom creation, despite the effects of the fall is essentially good, right? That's a very Thomistic idea that the essential qualities of God. So the divine goodness, beauty, and truth of God come only through what Von Hugel called the sensible or the natural, Um, or as he puts it and O'Connor was fond of quoting, the highest realities and deepest responses are experienced by us within or in contact with the lower and the lowliest. So essentially, grace cannot be separated from nature. And I argue again in my book that that central tenet of von Hugel's is what caused the theological turn in O'Connor's stories after about 1955. That this idea that God's grace, that his mercy burns, that his grace isn't what it appears to be, that the beauty, truth, and goodness of God often comes through violent, grotesque, and foolish means, that became for her, I think, her signature aesthetic contribution to, uh, to the literary world.
1: Well, that's a perfect segue into my next question. So, because one of the most fascinating sections for me of your book, and what I'd love to hear more about, was when you talked about O'Connor having a theology of the grotesque, which you sort of mentioned. And you call this a, a theo literary device. Um, and you say that O'Connor's grotesque characters are, quote, fashioned from the least of these from Scripture, who are naked and imprisoned, the hungry and destitute with whom Christ identifies in Toto, just as you did to. One of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And that's referencing Matthew 25:40. And then you continue. These grotesques, the Mason Tarwaters and bishops, and yes, even the Mrs. Chesneys of the world are the ones who embody the crucified grotesque, capital G, on whom all of O'Connor's lesser grotesques are based. Would you flesh out these connections that you made in this section and take us a little bit deeper into that theology of the grotesque? I, I think we, our listeners can handle it, so let's go. Okay. There.
0: All right. So <laughs> let's see. Should we give the PG thirteen version? Or, you know, um, O'Connor. I again, I, I argue in the book is was a grotesque herself, um, and and I don't mean that obviously in the pejorative sense, of course. Uh, Jesus identified himself with the grotesque, with with the marginalized, with the least of these. And that's what fascinated O'Connor. And if you think about it, you, act, you ask any actor or actress worth his or her salt, which character is more fun to play, the good character or the evil one? Nine times out of 10, it's the evil character that's it's so much more accessible to us. It's so much more interesting in some respects. There's this tendency, I think, um, in our, in, 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 culture, in, in theology, even to sort of understand goodness as kind of one dimensional evil on the other hand. Well, there are all sorts of dimensions to evil that we can play with and talk about and, 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 and unwrap. And I think what O'Connor understood was that okay, so evil is the low hanging fruit of our existence. It's so accessible. It's the one thing we we can all admit exists. I mean, Ch- you know, Chesterton makes the point that evil is the is the one thing that we can admit uh, about the world, and we actually have visual proof of it. So I think the irony of that, of course, is that it's through that through the grotesque characters in her book, through the hermaphrodite, through the through the things that happen. I mean, a, a woman gets gored by a bull at the end of one story. A, a young boy drowns himself in the river at the end of another story. Another boy hangs himself from the rafters so he can be with his mom. All these terrible things that happen. And they sometimes, and, and maybe even often in her stories, happen to kind of terrible looking people and terrible acting people and country bumpkins and, and, you know, people that we would never, ever want to associate with. She, she takes that, that trope really in literature and imbues it with theological profundity. And she says, do you understand that that trope in literature comes straight out of the scriptural witness that if you look at the heroes of the so-called heroes of scripture, They were losers. They were adulterers and murderers and fools that had been, you know, I mean, they were outcasts. And I'm reading my my seven-year-old son, um, we're reading through the Jesus Storybook Bible. and, um, And my little boy just adores these stories and he's taken to memorizing them. And so he loves to, he has sort of an eidetic memory and he loves to remember things and just yesterday last night he was regaling me with the introduction to the Jesus Storybook Bible and it goes something like you know one thinks the bible is about heroes but really these people aren't heroes at all and it goes on to talk about you know how how Jesus himself was in this long line of losers and that god's in his inscrutable mystery takes what's grotesque in the world, takes what is thrown away as trash, takes what isn't obvious and is, doesn't appear as wonderful or good or no, notable. And that's where he packages himself. It's where he brings the truth of the world and of ourselves and of the gospel. And That's what Connor does does in every single one of her stories. There is always someone or something that is grotesque that happens in every single one of her stories. And as I say in the book, that crucifix hermeneutic, that's that term I give to my approach to O'Connor, ought to alert us that when we read something like that in O'Connor, it doesn't necessarily mean that evil has appeared, right? What's that line from Othello in Shakespeare when the devil's will the blackest sins put on they do appear at first with heavenly shows or something like that. When when uh there's often in O'Connor evil is what looks impressive. It's it's the it's the uh it's the uncle, the, the the urbane uncle in The Violent Bared Away, who really represents all that's actually wrong with the world. But he's the most well-adjusted, self-actualized, you know, he's the kind of guy we'd want to go to dinner with. Not, not Mason Tarwater, that country bumpkin hick who sees visions and is foaming at the mouth half the time. We, have, we don't want to have anything to do with him. We'd never invite him uh, to a party uh, where you know we were trying to impress people, but O'Connor says, you know, interestingly enough, our approach to the to the least of these in our own world—we all have them, we all know who they are. Our approach and relationship to them is a wonderful indicator, a barometer of our relationship to Christ. And if we are not, if we are not careful, we will unintentionally um it, want to stay as far away from christ as we possibly can and i just find that whole thing uh so compelling and frankly frightening scary it's 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 horrifying
1: so let's turn to your chapter um on d- O'Connor's second and final novel that you just referred to, The Violent Bear It Away. So I hadn't read this before, um, but I decided to put your book down when I saw the chapter was on this and and read the book before coming back to your engagement Good with it. Good for you.
0: Great. I wish every <laughs> reader of my book would do the same. That's great.
1: And I, I highly recommend that. Um, I absolutely devoured her book in about 24 hours. It was masterful. I couldn't put it down. And as I read, I found my expectations and momentary conclusions about characters continually challenged and then roundly struck down. So reading this book pushed at my instinct to rely on snap judgments and to take sides. Its sharp edges chastened me and brought me to a depth of reflection that most novels would never dare to impose on a reader. So and O'Connor thrusts us into this messy sacramental space between death and life and sort of just leaves us there. <laughs> and it's uncomfortably dark, and, but it's also a mercy. So how did you navigate O'Connor's sacramental language in this novel specifically, and more generally as a Protestant? How has O'Connor informed your understanding of sacrament?
0: Well, that's a great question. Um, well, I've become a transubstantiationalist. <laughs> I believe in transubstantiation. Um, her, her theology, as you rightly say, and as I talk about in, in my book, it, it's not, you know, a lot of times the impulse in among Christians when talking about art is what is the redemptive quality in this? What's the redemptive? Well, I don't know if that's the way, well, in fact, I'm quite certain, that that's not the way one ought to approach O'Connor's stories. One ought to ask, as you're asking, what's the sacramental element in her stories? Because, you know, what happens at the sacrament, obviously, as Christians, we believe is redemptive. But the question of sacramentology and redemption are two, uh, though related, obviously, deeply, they are separate concerns. And And O'Connor's work is not redemptive in the traditional sense, but it is, as you say, deeply sacramental. And her language, it was just so imbued with uh, not only terrible visions and grotesque characters, but there was, I mean, some absolutely gorgeous passages in that story, talking about the burning red sun Hanging over uh, the the woods after tar water has drowned slash baptized Bishop the quote unquote idiot child uh, of the of the novel these these riotous colors come out and and there's a there's a point that O'Connor is making, which is that when we recognize the sacramental nature of life, when we understand. That God's truth and goodness and beauty only comes through the material world. There's no other way it gets to us. Even if it comes to us as a vision, it's nonetheless mediated by our own, uh, our own prejudices and biases and neuroses. We we only get the mediated truth of God. In fact, that's that's a that's a that's a truism uh, when you look. At scripture right no one can face god and survive so the idea is the, the the implicit point through from genesis to revelation is if you see god it's either in a dream mediated by your own concerns or you have to look away lest you die so we get that that how we understand god is through the mediation of these things and that's the definition of sacrament that's what a sacrament is it's it's taking the wine or unfortunately in many protestant churches the grape juice and the bread unfortunately again often wonder bread the most <laughs> ironic <laughs> the most ironic thing you can serve in a church but it's that that blood and 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 the body represented in the wine and the bread. And then the other sacrament for Protestants, the the second sacrament of baptism, where you're just lowering someone into the chaos of of this the the watery depths. Those simple elements of bread, wine and water are the 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 deepest points in any liturgical service. They are the high water marks of a person's life they, they are at least ought to represent for us the deepest mysteries of the faith. And what I find so instructive, Amy, about O'Connor's work about Roman Catholic theology is that the deepest mysteries of God are actually the most tangible realities of life. I think too often, and Kathleen Norris talks about this in her book, Amazing Grace, when she's, she spent a lot of time with uh, Roman Catholic monks, in these monasteries. And these monks would were often be asked by some well-meaning folks. So what's something mystical that happened to you today? And the monk would sort of stammer and say, well, I went to church. And the idea that O'Connor uh, so beautifully renders in her stories is that, look, the most mystical things that happen, they're often the dirtiest, messiest, most, or they're, they're just so pedestrian. They're, they're, and they're, they're embodied in, in often terrible looking things and, and horrible experiences. I challenge my students often in my intro to theology class that we call CLFM, Christian Life, Faith, and Ministry, which doesn't exactly narrow it down as a topic. <laughs> but I often will challenge my students in the middle of the semester. I'll ask them, okay, I'd like to hear from a few of you. What are some experiences of God that you've had? And in 15 years of doing this, Amy, I've never once had a student bring up something unpleasant. Or if it was, there was a redemptive end to it that you could tie a bow around. So I challenge their theological aesthetic and I say, do you think it's possible that in some difficult circumstances of life, in ones that maybe haven't even been entirely resolved, do you think that God is present in those? Do you think that those might actually be more informative of who God is and who you are in relationship to God? Uh, can 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 we sort of throw those experiences into the mix and maybe sort of expand our our toolbox. And the students always find that challenging and instructive, I think, because they they start to realize, oh, maybe some of the terrible things that happen are actually ordained by God. And that would make sense, wouldn't it? It doesn't mean that every terrible thing that happens is ordained by God. That's just, uh, that's ridiculous. But it does mean that a lot of the things that we find in our own lives that are challenging or difficult or hard or things we consider ugly, foolish, stupid, that maybe actually that's where God is residing. That's where he's hiding. And O'Connor, her stories, her her essays and mystery and manners, her letters in the habit of being, her life. I mean, to, to me, God was as present in her as a writer as God is in any writer I've ever encountered and she was a cripple she was a cripple as i say in my book with an attitude she spurned the she spurned the academy and sort of the ivory tower trappings that go with it she lived with her mom on a little farm outside of a little town in georgia she was a, she was you know she was a subversive that's the term i use for her and so maybe this is a way forgive me for going on and on god's Truth, beauty, and goodness subverts our categories and then baptizes them. We just have to allow it to happen.
1: Mm -hmm. And and near the end of this section um, on when you talk about the violent bear it away, um, you have this lovely section that I'll have you read here in a moment um, where you talk about her theology being acidic and hard medicine and how her stories are an antidote to nihilism. So uh, would you go ahead and read that pa- uh, paragraph? And then would you just speak just uh, just real briefly about, because um, I think you've been already been hitting on it, about like there's this grotesque end that she is is sort of in and, and talking about, but it's, there's something there about how God is there. And so that sacramental vehicle, as it were, um, becomes a place uh, to turn against nihilism. So if you wouldn't mind reading that and then maybe addressing that piece.
0: To walk the narrow path of belief was to walk in the, quote, bleeding, stinking, mad shadow of Jesus, end quote. Which is why in O'Connor's stories, the terror of God is the plight of the believer. That's where the drama lies, not in her character's condemnation, but in their redemption. The gospel, for all its good news, is tar water to the reluctant, recalcitrant prophet and lackluster, lukewarm believer. It is thus easy to see how O'Connor's stories were not written principally for the non-believer, who would have likely missed the depth of her stories, but for the presumptive believer, who in the 1950s and early 60s counted for much or most of the American populace, who saw their nationality as conferring on them automatic Christian affiliation, but who nonetheless were, O'Connor believed, for all their presumption, almost as deaf, dumb, and blind as the atheist. It is precisely to them that she felt the need to shout and draw startling images, not to the deaf, but to the hard of hearing, and not for the blind, but for the almost blind. This was the audience, ironically, who did not hold the same beliefs as O'Connor, not the pagan north for which God appeared to have vacated the premises, but the believing South, a place that Christ still haunted. Her theology is acidic, but only to those who already believe. The grand irony in this, of course, is that it is only those who unwittingly share her beliefs, or at least claim they do, who really feel the sting of her stories. And it is in this sense that the typical O'Connor reader vicariously experiences the same fierce treatment her believing or half-believing characters do. She is hard medicine, and her stories are a fierce antidote to the nihilism she claimed pervaded the air we breathe. Quote, if you live today, you breathe in nihilism, in or out of the church, it's the gas you breathe. End quote. Yeah, it's a, I, I'm glad that you picked that paragraph out because in some ways it's sort of a nice distillation of my whole book. And I think this is what I just find both so bracing and, and, and so beautiful about her stories and about who she was as a person. I mean, her stories are in some ways a direct extension of herself as a grotesque as someone who is in the thick and throes of the redemptive project. And I think it's, you know, her real audience was the sort of the erstwhile believer, the one who comfortably fits themselves into the Christian faith, who can have sort of their existential cake and eat it too, right? Oh, I can follow Christ, but I can also be concerned about money and have a two car garage and two and a half children and drive a Volvo with a white picket fence in my yard. All of those things can happily coexist for me. And that was precisely the sort of thing that O'Connor found uh, so reprehensible about modern life was that we had, in some ways, a gentrified evil. We'd made it acceptable. We'd turned it into something kind of tawdry and innocuous so that uh, we could somehow justify our salvation while at the same time uh, nurturing our capitalistic instincts, if you want to put it in, in more raw terms. And O'Connor just would she doesn't let us get away with it.
1: Oh, mm. well, That's wonderful. So you mentioned early on in the book, um, so shift gears into a question of process here. Um, you mentioned early on about how uh, about writing a screenplay for this piece. And you mentioned it earlier um, today as well. So my question is, I'm going to ask a lot of people as we do different interviews about how to write books and that kind of thing. But I I bet I'm not going to ask very many people this question. How does one go about writing a screenplay? (laughs) Um, You've written one, and I believe you're working on a second one, right?
0: I finished the second one, actually. And now I'm just sort of making a couple last changes and trying to shop it around. Yeah. Well, so how does one write a screenplay? Well, in my case, not not very well. At first, I, <laughs> I had never, well, I had written one other one, actually. Um, it, was, uh, it was a an adaptation of, of Frederick Beekner's novel, Godric. And I even got to meet uh, Fred Beekner and uh, went and visited him in Vermont and his wife. And uh, it was, anyway, that was my first attempt at it. And then uh, Scott and Ralph approached me to write this uh, this screenplay of the Violent Bared Away, and you know I
1: tell us who would you tell us who they are? Just yeah, sorry. So Scott
0: Derrickson is a is a director in Hollywood. His his most recent movie was Doctor Strange. Uh, He's uh, done the Exorcism of Emily Rose, which perhaps prior to Doctor Strange was he was he was most famous for. In fact, we met over. That movie. In in fact, if I may just share a quick vignette about that, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I think I was substitute teaching for my father at uh, the class he used to teach in Hollywood at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. And I was using Rilke, Rainer Maria Rilke's. Poetry and his Duino elegies as a sort of an examination of beauty and terror, as I've mentioned to you earlier. That's something I'm fascinated by. Well, Scott Derrickson happened to be in the audience that day listening to the class, and I didn't know who he was. Uh, and he sent me an email later asking if I'd be willing to meet with him uh, because he was just about to receive the police uh, recording the actual tapes and the pictures that came um With the exorcism of Annalise Michel, who is the character in the movie, um, the exorcism of Emily Rose, the name has changed. And he didn't want to sit there and digest it by himself. So he said, would you like to come along and uh, do it with me? And I thought, oh, how fun. So... (laughs) We wow. had a we had a bottle of wine and a couple of steaks on the barbie, and then sat down and and put in the Maxell cassette tapes and listened to the exorcism and uh, and looked at the the uh, photos of this young woman who died in the process of, of of performing the exorcism. And of course, the conceit of the movie is that the the priest is put on trial for her death. So, um, so so now I'm being asked a few years later by Scott, uh, Derrickson and Ralph Winter, who is a very well regarded well-known producer in Hollywood, a wonderful Christian man. Uh, he's helped produce the Star Trek series, the X-Men series. Uh, so he's a very well established uh, in this town and very well respected. They asked if I'd be willing to write this screenplay. Well, I had written that one, you know, on Buechner, uh Beekner's novel Godric, and it was a, a freshman attempt. And uh, so I was having to learn on the job. And what I learned, Amy, I think, is that um, I, and Scott was a, a terrific help to me in our back and forth. He kept reminding me that movies are a visual medium and, you know, it's the whole Henry James show don't tell business. And I had to render, I had to, as I mentioned in my introduction, I had to feel around in the dark, right. For the gestures that O'Connor was making in her stories. And, uh, and I had, to, I had to picture them in my mind's eye. And so when I did that, I was writing from a totally different impulse, in a totally different cadence. I, I, I was writing for the screen. I was, you know, when they, they teach you in preaching class in seminary, that you, you have to, when you're doing a homiletical exercise, you have to embody what you're saying, or people will just receive it as words. But if you can embody what you're saying, they'll receive it as truth. So I had to embody the story that O'Connor had beautifully laid out in a way that would make sense visually. So, uh, so I had to write for the eye. And... And I had always written for the ear as a preacher, so I had to totally change up my approach and write for the eye. And that made me see O'Connor in a way that I don't think most scholars were forced to look at her. Um, that I, I had a different perspective on her. And I think it's what led to some of the insights that come from the book. Because I approached her not as a reader, but as a writer. And I, you know, I did the unthinkable. I tried to put her words into my own words, which is, you know, anathema to anyone who's concerned about literature and culture. But I had to do it. That was was what I was being paid to do. So I I was able to uh, kind of stumble my way through this process. And I think I came up with a, you know, a pretty decent screenplay, but that's a whole other story down the road (laughs) about why it was never made into a movie. And it's a long and arduous and boring one that we don't need to go through here. So...
1: Well, let's let's take a couple minutes and go into our speed round. So I'm going to ask very quick questions just off the top of your head real short. Just which Disney princess are you and why?
0: Uh, Belle. I am Belle because I'm always attracted to the horrifying beast who I am trying to redeem into the beautiful <laughs> prince or princess. Just change up the, the uh, gender a little bit. and That's who
1: I am. Tea or
0: coffee. Well, definitely tea. Uh, Whenever I go to Starbucks, I always get a two-pump chai with no water. So I'm very much a tea guy, and tea is just a lot more uh, accessible than coffee. We all know, all adults know that secretly, coffee and beer don't taste good, but we have to pretend (laughs) that they do.
1: Well, (laughs) I think you just alienated some of our audience, but you know, we'll 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 let that go. Okay. So, what's your comfort movie?
0: Oh, my comfort movie is um, probably. Uh, Never Cry Wolf. It's a it's a movie, uh, sort of loosely filmed like a documentary uh, about a National Geographic explorer who was sent up to the Alaskan tundra to figure out what was happening to the wolves or the, the uh, caribou. They were they were their population was being decimated, and he wanted to know what was going on. So it's this fabulous movie that I turn to all the time. I love Never Cry Wolf.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. So what's the most significant book in theology for you in the last 50 years?
0: Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy.
1: Ooh, good choice. What is the weirdest question you've been asked by a student or a child?
0: Well, I think maybe most recently, my son asked, well, let's see, the weirdest question asked by a student or a child oh boy i was just realizing that that question that that um that my son asked would not be appropriate to share in the air uh what's the weirdest <laughs> question uh uh pass sorry All right. i can't think of one oh, i get okay. so many weird questions on a weekly basis i can't filter <laughs> through them
1: <laughs> uh what superpower do you wish you could have and why
0: hmm. Well, I used to say in my more voyeuristic uh, seasons that I could be invisible so I could uh, eavesdrop on people's conversations. But I think the fact of the matter is I want to fly. I want to be able to fly places just for fun, for no other reason than just to levitate myself.
1: Do you have any unusual phobias? Um, no, I don't think any of them are
0: unusual. I mean, I'm afraid of the same things a lot of other people are. Death. Uh <laughs> hell the devil yeah i'm i'm not i there's nothing
1: not, i love how you went there not snakes not no, spiders no, but no, death, snakes and spiders.
0: Hell. Hey, Amy, i grew up in the third world i grew up in the <laughs> philippines we used to do have spider fights on sticks and i lived where king cobras share share space i'm not nothing nothing creeps me out too much
1: <laughs> what's one idea in theology that you think needs to die well, I this is probably an
0: answer that you hear from a lot of your guests, at least I would hope so. But the idea that God blesses us with
1: wealth—that
0: mm. needs to die, and it needs to die fast, I think. And what they always, what people always do, is say, "Well, look how Job ended." Well, yeah, Job ended, uh, you know, with everything returned to him tenfold. But typically, that's not the way that God works, and it's the exception that proves the rule, I think. And if you talk to any biblical scholar, they'll say the end of Job isn't exactly uh, part of the original story. But in any case, that's, a, that's another conversation for experts better than I. So the health and wealth gospel, I think, is the most uh, pernicious thing that's happened to uh, modern theology in the last 500 years.
1: And what project are you working on now that you're most excited about?
0: Well, <clears throat> there's one project that, that I'm excited about is I've just finished this screenplay and it's uh loosely adapted from st- uh Stephen Crane's short story The Open Boat. <clears throat> and I am in the process right now of just making up uh, some last minute touches and changes and then I'm going to try to uh, shop it around and see what comes of it. So that's that's a project that I'm that I'm working on and I'm very excited about.
1: Very cool. Very cool. So just a couple more questions for you. Um you include um, a wonderful little addendum at the end of your book titled "Literature as Liturgy," which I have to confess I wish was longer because it was awesome. Would you chart a path for us of how Flannery O'Connor and other examples of challenging literature, Christian or not, can serve the church liturgically?
0: Literature serves the church liturgically by showing rather than telling, right? So it's that it's that that time honored. Adage of Henry James: Show, don't tell. And what literature does particularly well, good literature, is it shows truths. It doesn't. It's not didactic. It's it's um, you know, it's illustrative. It's uh, often allegorical. It's 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 well, it's it's picturing truth on this on uh, on the screen. It's writing for the screen. It's doing what a screenplay does. So literature, I think, is all too often not used in in ways that I think the church would really profit from. I think we need to take books like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where what's happening there is sort of the anti-creation. We could we could use some of the lines from her book and and u- literally incorporate it into a lit- liturgy of confession, right? So we could use something like that. We could use... Um, G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday as a way of picturing what goes wrong with the world and how it doesn't appear that way. We could use, I mean, you know, you could go on and on with talking about uh, Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness. There, you could, There's so much rich material in literature. I mean, Shakespeare is where we would all start. Dante's Uh, Comedia is a fabulous place to go, where I I just don't think the church often enough, churches in general often enough, take the best that we have of literature and use that show telling quality in in the average church service. And I think church would be so much richer if we brought the best of our literary traditions into more active play. In, in the life of the church. I mean, we talked about this in Orvieto, didn't we, as as artists and theologians who were gathered around these marvelous meals that Maria would make for us three times a day. And we would talk about that intersection. And what is that? How can we make the church a richer place? And for some people, I think that's kind of a the wrong question to ask, or it's the wrong way of putting it. Like the church is a rich place because God is present. Well, yeah, absolutely it is. But we can either make it uh, more boring or more rich by our contribution to it. And I think bringing in great literature like O'Connor and, and finding the, the kernel finding the, some of the more pregnant truths of the stories and even the films that we watch. I teach a, a class on theology and film and, and we in, we intentionally don't watch any quote unquote spiritual films, Christian films. Cause that's, that's, I mean, anyone can, can, glean a spiritual truth from films like that. Let's look at the more gritty, just real films that don't explicitly deal with any of those things and let's practice ourselves. Let's train ourselves to look at, you know, Beekner said the job for every person is to find what's holy in each day. Well, why don't we take the average Christian service, if there's such a thing as saying the average Christian service. Let's take the liturgy on Sunday. And let's let's inject into that fabulous, let's hope, fabulous liturgy of the church. And let's inject it with these terrific stories and films and poetry and music. There was a wonderful article in the New York Times a few months ago by Michael Marison entitled, There's More Religion in Bach's Brandenburg Music Than You Think, or something like that. So... Let's, let's play uh, Bach's Brandenburg Concertos, right? And let's talk about how in Bach's Brandenburg's in particular, in his first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth uh, concertos, in that lovely, lovely collection of music, that he takes instruments that were typically not used to, to, to play solos, and he inverts everything. And so now it's the lower instruments that are playing the solos and it's the vaunted instruments that are playing the little eighth notes in the background as a reversal of the gospel truth. So let's play some, uh, some of Bach's music um, more deliberately in liturgy. I mean, you could go, seriously, we could talk about this for an hour and a half uh, and we could say, this is how we do it. And in my book, and you're right, I wish the section had been longer, um, uh, but maybe that's another book. But talking about how O'Connor's um, commitment to the truth and beauty and goodness of God in this beautifully sacramental way would, would fit perfectly into, uh, into a liturgy of, of, of the Eucharist and, and read passages from her book, from not just The Violent Bared Away, but from any of her short stories as a way of, you know, in Emily Dickinson's famous line, telling the truth, but telling it slant. Let's, let's, this is what literature does, right? Amy, it tells the truth, but it tells it slant. This is what music does. It's what film does. It's what poetry does. And no medium does it better than, than they do. Uh, So let's, let's, let's imbue the liturgy of the church with the best that the world has to offer. Which is art, um, and and let's 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 more deliberately bring those two worlds together. And I don't think we do it as often as we should.
1: Well, and I think some, maybe some of the response that some might have is like, "Oh, well, that's literature." Like it sort of automatically takes on this kind of elitist cast. Which, like you, but if you re- pick up Flannery O'Connor, you're not reading something that is removed and sort of ethereal and you know like i have to have a master's degree to understand this she's incredibly clear and approachable and gritty and and there and you can identify with her work and um i think maybe some of uh, the, our hesitation with art in general is a uh, sort of a worry about how to sort of like Access. Like, we sort of want truth to be really obvious. And I think there's some issues with hermeneutics there, which we can go into in a different time, where, like, if it's not like it's right there, like, you know, this is exactly what this passage means, obviously. See, da da. Um, but I think that we sometimes sell our congregants short, including. Kids and people that don't have a lot of education. Like um, some of my most enjoyable theological conversations have been with people who ask questions in a very real way and actually want a real answer. <laughs> and isn't it?
0: And isn't it? It's so true. And isn't it kind of this misguided postmodern impulse to assume that if you're telling a story or reading literature, you're somehow speaking to the highbrow among the congregation? When you and I knew and and we learned uh, when we went to Orvieto that the frescoes were for the unlettered people. You told stories, you used art to capture the minds and imaginations of precisely the people who were not educated. And yet we've somehow turned that on its head and assumed that if you're going to introduce art into the church, you're talking about some kind of highbrow, very specialized, sort of pretentious. No, it's just the opposite. We want to tell stories so that our kids understand it. I remember... Hearing Earl Palmer, a, a really wonderful and, and well-known Presbyterian pastor who was known for his engaging preaching, a wonderful preacher and he he said he was always preaching his his audience was always an eighth grader, someone a young teenager because if they got it and, and C.s. Lewis writes for the very same reason you know he says in some of his letters, if you can't explain it to a kid, you don't understand it. So I think art would serve exactly the opposite function of what people assume. It would it would bring those of us who may not be lettered quote unquote, who may not have whatever, I think for everyone it just becomes accessible. I mean and, and after all, the Bible is at least literature. It's not just that, but that's the way God chose to share his revelation to us. And uh, so there you have it. Uh, Literature is a part of scripture and and, and of the church and has been for two, three, four thousand years. So let's just uh, let's just extend the franchise. (laughs)
1: Love it. Well, what a delight it was to talk with you, Michael. I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thank you, Amy. So did I. So did I. It was real, real uh, fun for me, too. Thank you.
1: This is your host, Amy Hughes, with OnScript. We've been enjoying a conversation today with Michael Bruner, Associate Professor of Practical Theology at Azusa Pacific University. Michael has written A Subversive Gospel, Flannery O'Connor and the Reimagining of Beauty, Goodness, and Truth, published with IVP Academic in 2017. In addition to reading Flannery O'Connor again, or for the first time, I hope that you all would pick this book up. You'll find a link on our website, onscript.study. Thank you for joining me today, friends. You have been listening to OnScript,
0: delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month.
1: Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.